welcome back to Your Brain on Positive. All the love and support you need is residing inside of you. And we're going to make it easier to turn it on. Bop episode next. Jackie's interview with Frank King from the Suicide Prevention Show. This interview is being added to Your Brain on Positive in honor of the nomination of the Teen Suicide Prevention Society as a contestant on the Change Makers Prize. One of the first phone calls that Jackie made after she got the nomination was to her friend, Frank King. We're about to put suicide prevention on the map, and God willing, we'll put suicide prevention programs out of business because they won't be needed anymore. Enjoy the conversation. It's not often you get to talk to a mental health comedian about what's so funny about suicide. Welcome to the Suicide Prevention Show. We are breaking the silence and saving lives. I am super excited that you are here. I am the host, Jackie Simmons, and we are going to take you on a journey that might change your world, and I guarantee you, it will not be boring. All right, here's the deal. Get ready. You get ready by doing some basic housekeeping. Turn off your distractions. Unplug and plug into what's happening today. You will also want to get a pen and paper. There may be some things that are startling, things that we're sharing, things that you didn't know that you want to share. So get ready to write some things down. And as always, hang on. The ride gets more interesting from here. Oh, yeah. Uh, Join the speakers in the VIP lounge. This is something super special for you. If you are already a VIP in our world, that means a very inspiring person. If you're already a VIP, you know you can interact with the speakers in the VIP lounge. You know that you are getting thousands of dollars worth of bonuses. As a matter of fact, our bonuses, thanks to our generous speakers and partners, over $10,000 worth of value. And you get to decide what you want to contribute. So check out the donation page, check out all of the bonuses and know that we have a lot more than are what are listed there and join us and be a very inspiring person. Claim that for yourself. Welcome to the show. This is the Suicide Prevention Show and I am very, very honored to have as my guest today, someone you're gonna want to meet. His name is Frank King and Frank has an amazing journey He's going to take us on, and he's going to give us some ideas from his perspective of the world, which is highly, highly unique. So, Frank, would you please join me in the studio and everyone help me welcome Frank King? Ta da! Hey, everybody. All right. So, Frank, I know that you have your own way of introducing the world. So, I'm going to do something that people who know me don't think is possible. I'm going to mute and I'm going to let you roll with this and we will go. I'll come back in and then we'll look for questions in the chat so people can put questions in the chat. And I know Reverend Kelly's excited to be here. So anything you want me to say before I just give control to you? Yes, I'm in the advanced sharing options. Who can share? All panelists who can start sharing? Just share. Okay, I click share. Ah, there we go. 
Because I've got PowerPoint. Isn't everybody excited? Everybody's excited. Not because you have a PowerPoint. No. PowerPoints of themselves are not usually exciting. No. However, However. you are an exciting person. Oh, I'm sorry. You know what? (laughs) Forgive me. Um, This is a slide I made for dentists, actually. Oh, isn't Um, that cool? Well, because I when I got into, when I decided I was going to just be a suicide prevention speaker, as I say in the speaking business, choose a lane. I decided January 1st, 2018, that would be my lane. And then regardless of what business you are in, uh, what sort of entrepreneur you are, I believe you need to select your ideal clients, ideal customers. And so what I looked at was the top 10 at-risk occupations for suicide. Uh, the good news is dentists are not number one, as everybody seems to think. Uh, the bad news is they're solidly number six or seven consistently in the top 10. So dentists were my first first target market, first ideal client, the people that I would let beyond. Have you guys read the book, um, Michael Port, Book Yourself Solid? He says the only people you should be doing business with, kind of like a high-end bar, where they only let certain people pass the velvet rope. And he said, eventually, in your business, whatever it is, chiropractor, hairdresser, whatever, the only people you should be doing business with are people you would let be on the velvet rope. And then anybody else, you refer to somebody who does exactly what they're looking for. So anyway, that's why there's a dental suicide prevention. uh, (laughs) I I just did a three-hour CE for a group of endodontists last weekend. All right. So we're going to unpack. CE means you did a continuing education course. Here's what's interesting to me. An endodontist practice can get a continuing education credit, can get credits for learning about suicide prevention for their practices. I'm fascinated. It's like about time. Yes, let's get ahead of this curve. Well, and it was in the state of Washington, which, is, by the way, is ahead of the curve in this way. Every healthcare provider, chiropractors, dentists, hygienists, physicians, et cetera, in the state of Washington have to have three hours of suicide prevention CE, continuing education, mm-hmm. or CME, continuing medical education, to renew their license. Wow. Uh, hopefully that will spread to other states. Other states recommend it for those professionals, but Washington, as uh, a woman who lost her husband, I believe an attorney, to suicide, pushed, helped push the legislation through. And so um, that's why one, I'm there. One determined person yeah. can do a lot. I mean, this is the only reason that there is a teen suicide prevention society is that my daughters and I got together and said, we don't want any other family to have to live through what we live through. Yes. So So what's your story, Frank? Well, people are watching, listening. My slide, if you're just listening, says the mental health comedian. And below that, um, suicide prevention is a dental practice health and safety issue. So if you don't have a video, that's why I had to go through that disclaimer. Um, Treating the pain behind the smiles is the name of the keynote. If you are looking at the screen, the mental health comedian is up there. The mental health comedian and the elephant in the room. Elephant in the room. But um, is when I speak is always, wait a minute, comedian talking about depression, thoughts of suicide. How exactly does that work? Well, I think I'm a good choice. Three reasons. One, the original comedian in the world was the court jester. And the court jester's job was to speak truth to power on behalf of the powerless with humor. I believe I speak truth to the power of mental illness on behalf of those often powerless in its grip with humor. Number two, I believe where there's humor, there's hope, where there's laughter, there's life that nobody dies laughing. 
And number three, depression, suicide run in my family. My grandmother died by suicide. My mother found her. My great aunt died by suicide. My mother and I found her. I was four years old. I screamed four days. And April 10th, 2010, after filing a Chapter 7 bankruptcy and losing everything we worked for in 25 years of our marriage, I, I learned what the barrel of my gun tasted like. Spoiler alert, I did not pull the trigger. A friend of mine came up after a keynote recently. He never heard me say that. He thought it'd be funny. He goes, hey, man, how come you didn't pull the trigger? I go, hey, man, could you try to sound slightly less disappointed? Uh if you want to know why I did not pull the trigger, it's in my first TEDx talk called A Matter of Laugh, L-A-U-G-H, or Death, A Matter of Laugh or Death. That was 2014. The reason I did that was because, as you guys were wondering, comedian, suicide, depression, I had to rebrand from a funny speaker to a speaker who was funny. And so at age 52, on my first TEDx stage, I came out as depressed and suicidal, came out in that nobody in my life knew that I was living with major depressive disorder and chronic suicidal ideation. Not my wife, not my friends, not my family. So as a matter of fact, my wife was about to play the video on YouTube a couple of months later. And I said, look, don't hit play yet. There's a half a dozen things I need to tell you I don't want you to learn on that video. See, people with mental illness oftentimes are great actors. Act as if nothing is, absolutely nothing is wrong. I have a Screen Actors Guild card for a reason. I'm a great actor. Anyway. Um, so my next slide here is, uh, start the conversation. When I was preparing for my first TEDx talk, what I discovered was that even though hardly anyone talks about depression and suicide out loud, although it's getting better, if you bring up depression and suicide, if you mention the words depression and suicide out loud, almost everyone has a story. I was doing a cruise ship. It was breakfast. I was in the Lido. Couldn't find a place to sit. I saw a table for two, empty chair. I looked at the woman. I pointed. She nodded. I sat. She looks up. She goes, hey, are you the comedian? I go, hey, did you enjoy the comedy show? She goes, I really did. I said, then I'm the comedian. She starts laughing. She goes, what would you have said if I told you I wasn't the comedian or didn't like the show? I would say, well, they tell me I look a whole lot like it. She asked me a question many cruisers asked. Is cruise comedy all you do? I said, no, I'm a speaker. And if you don't mind me bragging, I, I just nailed down my first TEDx talk. She goes, I love the TEDx talks. What's the subject? Now, I've had this conversation a number of times in the previous month. I believed I knew what was coming. So I said to her, depression and suicide, and started to count down in my head. Three, two, one. Sure enough. She says, Frank, I tried to kill myself twice. She and I have just met. I mean, she saw me on stage, but it's the first time we've been face-to-face -face in person. She goes, first time I was in college, not that serious, kind of half-hearted. Second time, far more serious. She said, I had graduated college. I had graduated medical school. I had the knowledge. I had the equipment. I had the IV started in my ankle. Suicide cocktail in one hand, syringe in the other, getting ready to load it up. She said, the phone rang. Oh. Do I answer it to the thought? Well, I better answer it. It might be someone who would worry, come over, interrupt. Picks up the phone. It's her 13-year-old son. She goes, I do not know if he had a premonition or it was something in my voice. But he said, Mom, don't do anything. So I decided I would not do it that day. I didn't give up on the idea of suicide, she said. But I decided not to do it that day because I knew 
If I did it that day, he would always feel guilty, survivor's guilt. Wasn't there something he could say or do to stop me from dying by suicide? Well, the good news is there are things you can say. There are things you can do. We'll cover some of that later on. I said to her, how old is he now? She said, he's 21. I said, does he know his phone call saved your life? She said, how do you start that conversation? That became my tagline. That became the theme of that first TEDx talk, starting the conversation on suicide. Because if you bring it up, pretty much everybody has a story. Oh, and on that subject, my favorite Martin Luther King quote. You know, I'm not familiar with that quote. Our lives begin to end the day we become silent about things that matter. Yes. And I believe silence in the world of mental health, mental illness kills. You hear people say all the time, he never said anything. She never gave any indication. Now, here's the good news. Let's, let's do a little good news, Jackie. Oh, the good news. Mm-hmm. Eight out of 10 people, roughly, on average, who are suicidal or ambivalent. They cannot make up their mind. Nine mm-hmm. out of 10 who are suicidal give hints in the last seven days leading up to an attempt, which means the vast majority of people can be saved. They want somebody to notice something and interrupt. The catch is you have to you have to be able to notice the signs and symptoms of depression and thoughts of suicide, what to say, what not to say, what to do, what not to do, and how to find resources. And again, we will cover those in uh, in our little conversation today. But the good news is the vast majority of people want to be saved. And suicide is the most preventable cause of death on the planet. Unfortunately, it's also the leading cause of death for young adults in the United States now. Yes. Uh, I think in the last, in the, during the pandemic, the last number I saw was the suicide rate actually went down overall 1.5%. The category in which it went up, uh, you just mentioned. So it's a bit of a mix. The other, the piece of good news in all that is the number of phone calls and texts to the suicide prevention lifeline and text line jumped by hundreds of thousands. So people are, I guess, pushed by the pandemic, actually reaching out for help. Every year in the United States, 8 million people, roughly, attempt suicide. One, I'm sorry, think about attempting suicide. 1.4 million attempt. And this is a number from 2019, 47,000 complete suicide. That's one every nine minutes. That's 146 a day. That's a fully loaded 737 going to the ground like a lawn dart every day. And again, where's the outcry? Why are, why are more people not talking about it? Well, so that's know, my job. Yeah, that's, that's why you're on this show is because you are unafraid. Well, I, here we go. Somebody has to be unafraid to lead the freak parade. It's my favorite big and rich song. Uh, somebody has to be unafraid to lead the freak parade. So that's my job. I get up on stage. Um, for a man to get up on stage, especially men, you know, big boys don't cry, toxic masculinity, all that, and reveal that they live with mental illness, thoughts of suicide. I get on stage and let my freak flag fly. And what happens is, almost invariably, it, it gives people in the audience permission to give voice to the, their experiences and, uh, and thoughts surrounding depression and suicide. When I get done, almost always, there's a line of two to 10 people who want to share a story, ask a question, look for resources. Um, some, and I hear things in that line that I, I know they haven't told anybody else. Relatives, friends, family, 
you know, things they may have never shared. I'm gonna say I met a 69 year old guy who has chronic suicidal ideation. He didn't know that till we met. Uh, I'll tell you that story in a second. But he said to me, Frank, that's what I've got. He said, and I'm 69 years old. I've never told anybody, including my therapist. Well, he lives in California. If he if he admits to his therapist that he's having thoughts of suicide, the therapist, if if he believes this gentleman, he's bound by law, I think, to drag him in front of a judge and try to get a 72-hour involuntary detention order. They call it a 5150 in California. That's why he's never told us there. So my job is to get up, let my freak flag fly, give people permission to give voice to their feelings and experiences surrounding depression and thoughts of suicide. Now, I mentioned my TEDx talk. This is my favorite uh, marketing guru, Seth Godin. This is what he says about TEDx. If you're looking for an idea worth spreading, which is the subject that's the heart of a TEDx is an idea worth spreading. All you need is a tribe and a vacuum. My tribe is people who live with mental illness for whom the option of suicide is always on the menu as a solution for problems large and small. That's chronic suicidal ideation. It's always, for me, a solution to problems large and small. I, example, a couple of years ago, my car broke down. I had three thoughts, unbidden. One, get it fixed. Two, buy a new one. Three, I could just kill myself. I know that sounds absurd, but that is chronic suicidal ideation. The upside of that story is, and I tell it in every keynote and every training, that every time I've done a keynote or training since 2014, there's been someone in the audience, sometimes more than one, who has chronic suicidal ideation or chronic suicidality. They do not know it has a name. They think they're just some kind of freak and completely alone. I had a young woman come up to me after a college suicide prevention presentation. She said, thanks for your keynote. I said, you're welcome. She said, but I got to tell you, it made me weak. How did it make you weak? She said, you know your story about the car? Get it fixed, buy a new one, just kill yourself. I go, yeah. She goes, I've been having those thoughts all my life. I didn't know it had a name. I didn't know it was a thing. I thought I was completely alone. And when I heard you say that out loud, I realized for the first time in my life that I'm not alone and I wept. That's the benefit of starting the conversation, dragging all that out of the sunlight, exposing it to the world is people like that. And that's happened every time I've spoken since 2014. I mean, it, the relief is palpable that they, I kind of feel like George Bailey in that movie. It's a wonderful life. I've, I've been shown what, what these people's lives might be like if I had not simply been there to Say, you know, you're not alone. And it's one of the reasons that I don't kill myself. Because if I did, I would undoubtedly take a lot of those people with me who never had a chance to hear me simply say, it's a thing and you're not alone. So we'll talk about reasons to stick around near the end of the presentation. And the vacuum, we've already talked about the vacuum. The vacuum is, with suicide prevention, hardly anyone's talking about it. So we're out to fill that vacuum. That's me, comedy boy. That's a smile I paste on every day and march through the world as if nothing is wrong. In most days, nothing is wrong. Some people think if you're depressed and suicidal, it's 24-7, 365. You know, if you're getting good therapy and your medication is working and you've got a self-care plan, and I do, diet, I'm on the keto diet. I do intermittent fasting. I have one meal a day every 20 or 24 hours. Exercise. I've been to the gym this morning already because I knew Jackie and I were getting together near the crack of dawn here in Oregon, by the way. And uh, and uh, good night's sleep, which I got last night. 
meditation twice a day. It's a it's called catnapper. That's the name of the it's a guided meditation. Takes you down, brings you back up. And medication. That's my self care plan. So if you're if you're listening and not watching, it's me in a blazer, Calvin Klein, gray t shirt, jeans, cocked back in a chair, big smile, like you know nothing in the world is wrong. And again, most days. Nothing in the world is wrong. And that's that that is my true personality. I don't, I don't have to put on the game face now. Now I have to laugh and I'm going to point out something else about your picture. OK, yes. it looks like in my world, we call it activating a connection where your index finger and thumb are together. Oh. Now, a lot of people use that as a meditation. We teach it as part of the four flavors of emotional energy about to create connections to calming states of emotion. So I don't know if you were intentionally doing that for that picture, but no, that's just me being me. <laughs> that's you being you. I love it, Frank. Now, same day, my photographer said, look, Frank, I've got a, an art project I want, I want some help with. Uh, what it is, is it's it has to be a real camera, you know, single lens reflex, nothing digital, real film and 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 natural light. So I want you to take the jacket off, leave the gray T-shirt on, come over, here, stand by the window so we get natural light. And what I want you to do is I want you to let something come through your eyes so that when it's hanging at the art show and people look at you, they'll think, man, there's something going on back there behind those eyes. So, Jackie, for the first time in my life, I decided to let that part of my personality that's been trying to kill me for decades come shining through. And with apologies to the Showtime series Dexter, which, by the way, starts again on November 7th, the 2021, if you're listening to this later on, um, with apologies to the Showtime series, series Dexter, this is my dark passenger. This is the part of my personality that's been trying to kill me, I believe, for decades. Now, the only other time I've shown this to anybody, I was I was auditioning in Portland for a role on an old show called um, Timothy Hutton. It was con men and women who went straight. Infinite TY. Oh, come on. Um, anyway, I was, <laughs> I'll think of it by the time we sign off. Um, they wanted me to play, my agent wanted me to audition for the role of an assassin. You know, a bad, bad former CIA, MMA, whatever. And I mean, I'm 148 pounds, sopping wet. I'm the nicest guy you'd ever meet. Why he thought that was a good fit for me, I have no idea. But I decided I would go and do the audition. However, I was going to wear the gray T-shirt, a jean jacket. I stopped by Big Lots on the way up to buy a kind of a badass looking pair of military style sunglasses. And I went into the audition and I decided I was going to kind of Nicholas Cage the audition. I was going to get in character when I left my car and I was not going to break character for any reason, you know, of the assassin until I got back to my car. So I committed to it. And I go in, and I don't know if you've ever done an audition, but there were two casting people standing on either side of the camera pointed at me. They read their part. I give, you know, I do my part of the audition. Still wearing the sunglasses, still letting this part of my personality shine through. So when I got done reading, you know, that scene with them, they said, now, now take the sunglasses off, do it again. So I cocked my head to the left and I simply went, no. And they said, well, thanks very much. We'll be in touch. So I stayed in character all the way back to my car. My cell phone rings. I break character. I pick it up. It's my agent. He, I said, hey, man, I get the part. He goes, no, it's, it's worse than that. How can it be worse than not getting the part? He goes, I'm not sure what you did exactly, but you're banned from the building. 
why am I why am I banned from the building? Because you scared those two casting people so bad. I go, what did I say that scared him? He goes, that's the freaky part. I asked him that. And they said, he said, no. <laughs> and I said, one word? And I said, now, do we all see the irony in this situation? Oh, yeah. You know, if you look like Liam Neeson or Dwayne The Rock Johnson, and, you know, it's an easy casting call. You look like me, nicest guy in the world, 148 pounds, sopping wet. If if I scared you so bad you banned me from the building, wouldn't you give me the part as the assassin? He goes, look, if Quentin Tarantino had been, been you know, producing that episode, you'd be working the rest of your life for the choices you made, the fact you didn't break character. But, you know, he ended up, Jackie, having to send them a comedy DVD of mine to prove to them that I wasn't that assassin. <laughs> I'm only trying to kill myself, not other people. Come on. Oh, there's my handgun. That's a nickel plated 38, which I still own, by the way. Uh, it's That's the one I know the... Uh, that's the one I know the taste of the barrel. That's what happened in April of 2010 after I, after I, uh, we lost everything in chapter seven. And you know what it was, Jackie? It was burdensomeness. People say, don't you think about the people you left behind? Oh, yeah. I was thinking about my wife. I had a million dollar life insurance policy. We just declared bankruptcy. I'm thinking I can fix this. Yeah, I can fix it with, you know, very quickly. I go, she's going to be broken hearted, but she's not going to be broke anymore. She'll have a million dollars. Something many people who are thinking about suicide think the world would be better off without it's an irrational thought but very common it's called burdensomeness so from the inside looking out it's almost a selfless act from the outside looking in it appears very selfish so i certainly understand all that oh look at that jay you know what that is that's my heart valve these things on the i guess on the right of the screen um or left of the screen if you're looking at the screen are they are if you can't see them you're on the podcast just listening they are half a dozen titanium twist ties holding my chest uh you know my my chest together my rib cage together because i've had two aortic valve replacements double bypass that this is the second valve replacement i got a double bypass the same day the reason i put that up there jackie is that's the day i i had my heart attack that's the closest I've come to dying since that time in the barn with the gun in 2010. I was out walking the dogs, half a mile up a logging trail, just the dogs and me. And the heart attack hit and I knew exactly what it was. And because when I had valve problems, if I just stopped moving, it would stop hurting. But I stopped moving and it got worse. So I knew I was having a heart attack. And uh, I had a smartphone on me, but I have T-Mobile, so I didn't have cell service. That never fails to get a laugh. Anyway, um, if I had been in a bad place that day, I could have died a very socially acceptable death. I could have sat down on the trail, let the heart attack run its course, and nobody but the dogs would know that I chose to end my life. They'd find me, see signs, symptoms of a heart attack. They'd see I had a smartphone and go, oh, why didn't he call? Oh, he's got T-Mobile. But I was in a good place that day, as I said. A lot of people think it's 24-7, 365. I have more good days than bad. It was a good day. And I had three German Shepherd rescues with me, our dog. And where I parked there, 30 yards from that, is a really busy road. So if I don't get those dogs back into the car and secure, it's not going to end well for them either. So that was my only goal, was to get the dogs back in the Toyota RAV4, slam the door. And if I drop dead right then, fine. They're safe. People ask me, you know, what were you thinking as you're coming down the hill, having the heart attack? Because you're dying. The heart muscle is dying. You are dying. Did you see a light? Did you hear your dead relative's voice? What were you thinking about on the way down the hill? 
What I was thinking about, Jackie, was two weeks from that day was to be my first TEDx talk. And of course, the TEDx talk is on suicide prevention. I'm coming down that hill and I'm crying. Because I'm thinking, if I could have just gotten to that TEDx and done my suicide prevention speech, keynote, 18 minutes, whatever, think of all the lives I could have saved. And I'm crying because I'm not going to get a chance to do that. Fortunately, I made back the car, drove two miles home, going to the house, yelling to my wife, honey, I'm having a heart attack. This is what I heard. I'm in the bathroom. I got the fan on. I can't hear you. What? I walked half mile, drove two. I'm going to die in my hallway. Spoiler alert, I didn't die. The paramedics came. They transported me to the hospital and all ended all ended well. I had three stents and I was home by, that was Saturday morning, home by Sunday noon. There's another shot. Another little red arrow right there. That's one of the blockages in my, uh, this is my grandmother, Dixie. My mother's on her lap. My grandmother, this is 1929. She just lost her husband. She's got to get these three kids and herself through the, depression and she did she got them through high school and college and saw them all married and then she was winding down mentally as people in my family do and so she ended her life my mom found it my grandmother taking care of everything she'd written the checks for the bills addressed the envelopes put them on the kitchen table she had um closed all the windows and doors pinned her wheel to her house coat so my mother could find it easily turned on the old gas stove, blew out the pilot light and sat down at the dining room table and she wrote this note. My dear children, I am so sorry to leave you, but it can't be helped. All summer long, I have been going downhill. Doctors have done all they could, but in spite of them, my nerves have gone completely shot. I can't sleep, I can't eat, and my mind is sadly unbalanced. Under such conditions, life is absolutely unlivable. Be good and meet me in the glory land. Heavenly Father understands. He has forgiven me, and I know you will too. Always my best love. Mother. And this is my great aunt uh, sitting next to the gentleman with the, with the white beard. And my mother couldn't reach her on the phone. Knew that she had glaucoma. Um, my mother was actually preparing a uh, mother-in-law suite at her house for her to come live with us because her, her vision was failing. But she was of the generation where didn't want to be a burden to anybody. And my mother knew that. So when she couldn't reach her on the phone, she got panicked. She loaded me into the car. We drove over, let ourselves in and found my great aunt had died by suicide. And that's, I was four years old. And what I saw, what happened to me there, and I'll, I'll spare you the details because it's horror movie, horrible, but it's in my first TEDx talk, a matter of life or death. I screamed for days. And if you are already hardwired for depression and suicide, and you're that close to an act of suicide, chances, you know, the percentages go up that you at some time in your life will seriously consider taking your own life. So, as I said, runs in the family. That's another shot of her with the gentleman's hand on her That's shortly before she died. This is what I think a lot of people with depression and thoughts of suicide do, is they fake it until they fake their life, they fake it until they take it. I think Robin Williams, he was very forthcoming about his substance abuse treatment and recovery, joked about it at length, never mentioned his, what I believe, bipolar disorder, given you know the man, his manic episodes on stage. I'm just guessing, I'm no clinician, but I'm guessing. Yeah. And, he, and, and he was 62 years old, 
he'd had heart surgery, a valve job, which can be depressing. I think he had a Parkinson's-like ailment that was progressing, which was affecting him physically and also his memory. And I think after 62 years, he just wanted the pain to stop. That's why people ask me, why did Robin Williams kill himself? I said, well, chances are he didn't want to kill himself. I didn't want to kill myself. Most people that I'm aware of do not want to kill themselves when they die by suicide. They simply want to end the pain. Now, this is a quote from him, I think, on Fresh Air with Terry Gross. Yeah, this is shortly before he died. If you listen carefully to this interview with Terry Gross, and if you can't see this, uh, it's life is not for everybody. And that's Robin Williams speaking in an interview with Terry Gross on NPR's Fresh Air not long before he died. Was this a hint that he was going to end his life? It is entirely possible in my mind that it is a hint. Empathy. That's the tough one to come by. Brene Brown said that sympathy is feeling sorry for you. Empathy is feeling sorry with you. And she said something that I've said many times in my keynotes, although I didn't ever say it quite as eloquently as she did. She lives, I guess, with a mental illness. And she said, and I believe this to be the case with me as well. She said, I am so comfortable sitting in my darkness. I can sit comfortably in you with yours. Somebody asked me yesterday, doesn't it, you know, trigger you, depress you? whatever, to spend time with people who are, you know, in similar situations. No, I find it very therapeutic because, you know, in, in most cases, I suppose I'm actually helping someone, maybe steering them far enough off the path of suicide to live a normal life. So, no, it doesn't trigger me. It has the opposite effect. I find it very therapeutic. Now, let's talk about the signs and symptoms of depression thoughts of suicide, because that's the key, I believe, to stopping. Because if 8 out of 10 are ambivalent and 9 out of 10 give hints, so depression, what are you looking for? Well, eat too much, can't eat. Sleep too much, cannot sleep. Um, let their personal hygiene go. Something you could even observe on Zoom. They log on Zoom and all of a sudden you think, hmm, hair's kind of dirty, clothes are not quite so clean. It may be because they cannot drag themselves out of bed in the morning to run a load of wash and hit the shower. Here's one. Have trouble getting out of bed in the morning, being on time. Rally in the afternoon. That's... That's one. Of, I say one of the top three symptoms. You could know, drag yourself out of the bed. Now, what do you say to somebody who is depressed? Here's what you don't say: pull yourself up by your bootstraps, turn that frown upside down. Have you tried joy? Listen, with joy, if you're not talking dishwashing liquid, I think I'm out of luck. Here's what you do say: I'm here for you, and I mean it. I know you're not lazy, crazy, or self-absorbed. I know that depression is a mental illness. Here's the good news: with time and treatment, things will get better. I will take the time. I'll help you get the treatment. Now, here's the next step and difficult for pretty much everybody. You need to ask them just like this. Are you having thoughts of suicide? If you can't ask that question, you find somebody you can. Because if your gut tells you they're having thoughts of suicide, go with that. Find somebody you can ask. Now, let's say they don't, they're not forthcoming. But you still think in your gut that they're circling the drain. How would you know? Well, they talk about death and dying. They Google death and dying. Death and dying appears in their, you know, in their artwork, music, writing, um, gathering the means to die by suicide, whether it's purchasing a firearm or stockpiling medications, getting their personal affairs in order, especially giving away prized possessions because they want to make sure their prized possessions go to the people they want them to go to when they're gone. And if they give away a pet, that's the top of that, you know, prized possession giveaway. That's extremely dangerous. Now, here's one that I think is dangerous. Because it's really hard to say what's uh, 
They've been depressed for a long time. And then you notice they are happy, really happy for no apparent reason. And you're happy because, Lord, they're finally happy. Well, they could be happy because they have chosen time, place, and method. And this is going to sound very familiar. They know the pain is finite. It's coming to an end. That's why they're happy. So what do you say if you believe somebody is suicidal? Do you have a plan? If they have a plan, what is your plan? If it's detailed to time, place, and method, do you get them on the phone with the Suicide Prevention Lifeline or texting the text line, 741-741? When do you call the cops? If they're in immediate danger to themselves or others, you have no choice but to call the cops. Now, let's say they are suicidal, but the plan is not that well for to time, place, and method. What do you say? Well, this is not in a textbook anywhere. This is something a psychiatrist and I came up with. You say to them, well, tell me, are you going to kill yourself? And if they say no, then say, tell me why not. Make them give voice to whatever's keeping them here. Friends, family, animals, whatever. Make them give voice. And if you ask me, are you going to, die? Are you going to, are you going to kill yourself? I would say, no, I'm not going to kill myself. And then you say, why not? Well, I've already told you because I would take a lot of people with me, I think, who never got a chance to hear me speak. Another reason is my mother and father wanted children desperately. This is in the mid 40s, 1940s, um, early 50s, before in vitro. And they they tried to adopt, but there weren't many infants available. So they decided, you know, go at it the old fashioned way. My mother got pregnant, carried it to term, and it died shortly after birth. A year later, she got pregnant again. She carried it to term and it died shortly after birth where she found the courage to try again. I, <clears throat> I don't know. She's the bravest person I've ever met. So she tried that third time. I was born a fourth time. My sister was born. So here's why, here's one of the reasons why I don't kill myself because my mother was so brave and worked so hard to bring me here, that I have to be as brave and work as hard to stay until my appointed death. There you go. Why stay? Now, your empathy slide is still up. And that's an amazing quote. And I love that you shared the Brene Brown story. Um, Because most people don't know that she struggles with mental illness. I mean, it's not something that is well known or talked about because we don't talk about things like that in polite yeah, company. That's <laughs> and that's why I like talking with you because we can talk about it here. Yes. And there we go. So there you go. What you got it all straightened out now? Yeah, there's a cat in my lap. You want to that black tail going back and forth? Yeah, there. yeah, yeah. Well, I, I figured you had an animal in there somewhere. Yeah. 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 No elephant. That would have been much more painful in the lap. It would have been very painful in the lap. I mean, elephants cannot be ignored. We can manage a cat. That's pretty That's good. That's true. Well, I've got nine of them, so it's it's a full-time job. Whoa, nine of them? All rescues. People, we live out in the country and people dump them out here. Mm. And, you know, neighbors call, hey, somebody just dumped a black and white cat. Get your live trap out. Oh, no. Nine, ten, what's the difference? <laughs> Reaches a point where it's just a full-time job. Yeah, and they all have better health insurance than I do, by the way. <laughs> yeah, I I hear you. <laughs> Funny thing about that, Frank. <laughs> the, this commentary, okay, you have shared a lot of information in a very short period of time. 
I'm going to invite people not to sneeze, but to actually, actually sneeze. Put it into the chat. What is it about having that conversation that holds you back? Because, Frank, maybe between the two of us, we can get a few more people talking. There's a stigma associated with mental illness. There's a separate stigma attached to thoughts of suicide. And, you know, it scares neurotypical people. Uh, they don't say anything because, A, they don't know what to say, or, B, they're afraid they'll say the wrong thing. There's an old urban legend. Mm. You should never mention the word suicide in front of somebody who's depressed. And as a comedian, I do love the reasoning because it might give them the idea. Suicide, what a great idea. Why didn't I think of that? Duh. Trust me, it's uh, crossed my mind. The I'm worst bad. part about that is yep. that urban legend kept me from having an honest conversation with my daughter, my middle daughter. Oh, boy. Stephanie. For over 20 years. Oh, my Lord. And I was so scared of putting the idea back in her head after her first attempt when she was 14 and her next attempt and her next attempt. And when I stood on the TEDx stage, actually, when I finished writing my TEDx script and I realized that I was afraid I would put the thought back in her head and she had survived 14 attempts. Oh, At some point, you would think that I would have gotten it, figured out that she had the thought. Yeah, where is she? And it, it still shocked me when on August 3rd, 2019, she stood up and gave a short talk and shared that she still struggles with suicidal thinking. And I'm like, what? Yeah. Our ability to believe what we believe, our ability to not see what doesn't match our belief systems. Is so huge, Frank. No matter how many times I read that CDC guideline of these are the signs and the symptoms to look for, my own brain wouldn't let me see what was happening right before my eyes. No. Yeah, we're the, the people we care about the most are at the most risk because we're not going to see it. So having the talk is more and more important. Yes. And making people comfortable about coming out and sharing it is mm -hmm. my job. I, I've been told by 95% of the clients I speak for, we just brought you in here to start the conversation on suicide. Mm -hmm. Because it does. I mean, it opens up that can of worms and, you know, people come out of the woodwork that are struggling and they go to HR, and, you know, let's pull out the, uh, what is it, employee assistance program, see what kind of, yeah. So it's it's just a matter of, and to see a man start the conversation and talk about it, you know, things emotional. Well, yeah, you know, I mean, I know the myth that men don't cry and all of that. And it's such a myth. And it creates so much damage to think that you have to hide it inside. But it's not just men who do that. Women and are great at masking. Oh, sure. And three times as many women attempt as men. Men tend to complete because they use a firearm. You know, yeah. we're going to slow that statistic down because you just ran that right over. Say that slowly so people get it. Uh, three times as many women attempt suicide, roughly three times as many women as men. Men tend to complete the suicide because they use a firearm. And that's one of the biggest pieces of information that creates problems, I think, for people reaching out for help. Because the statistics most of the time are only tracking those who died. They're yes. not tracking those who tried. And that's why it's such a mess with who needs help. And the answer is we all do. Yeah, men, I think eight out of 10 people who die by suicide in the U.S. 
on average currently are men, um, mostly age 45, 54. And they don't just not reach out about things, mental health. They don't reach out about, you know, they wait too long when they get a lump in the testicle or they've got chest pains or they don't get a PSA test or they don't have a colonoscopy. I've had several friends in the last year die of prostate cancer and um, colon cancer. And there's no reason for that. If you have a, if you have your PSA every year and you have your colonoscopy every five or 10, then they catch those polyps early, pull them out, keep eye on you. And, you know, mm-hmm. but men tend not to, you know, cause tough, we're tough, we're tough guys. We don't, you know, I've had a friend of mine go, I haven't seen a doctor in 25 years. Only one question for you. Next of kin. Because yeah, it, it's, we're going to call that suicide on the American plan. Yes. Okay. It's the John Wayne, tough guy, Clint Eastwood. Yo, it's it's a bragging right that you have not been seen by a doctor. I really don't care whether or not you see a doctor. I do care whether you are seen by a doctor. Slight difference. I can run into my doctor and see him in the grocery store. It's not going to do my health any good. Power of this to help break that stigma too. Frank, it's like, guys, what is holding you back? Guys and gals will use the generic. Hey, peeps, what's holding you back from putting yourself in the center of your own life and taking care of yourself? We've actually branded it as putting your own emotional oxygen mask on first. And that means taking care of you first. Yep. But, you know, guys, that's why that's why we wrote the series of books. That's Grit in the Grind, a mental mechanics manual, because... Yeah, there was no such thing. My my co-author went looking at Barnes and Noble brick and mortar and then Amazon online and could not find a book specifically on men's mental health. So what we had, we did a survey. Men, what do you want to what kind of help do you want in the way of a book? And they almost overwhelmingly said we want stories of real men with real problems and how they're really coping. And so each book is a dozen guys, each one has a different problem, and then how they're coping. And then there's exercises. It is truly a manual. Mm-hmm. Looks like a lawn bill owner's manual. There we and, go. And they, they, the two co-authors looped me in to add the humor and also the automobile metaphors. And book three is out now. First three are all on Amazon. If you'd like a copy of the first one for free, I think it's we in- got that link for them. I am so excited. I mean, come on, guys. What's better than getting a free book on this topic that you can give to your guy? If you're a guy, this is for you. If you got a guy, this is for you. If you think you might know a guy, this is for you. It's a great gift. Right? Well, and oddly enough, vis-a-vis or, uh, you know, going along what you said, most of our sales are to women overwhelmingly. They've got a guy in their life, brother, father, husband, whatever, who's struggling and, and they have no idea how to help them. So they buy the mental mechanics manual and it's got advice in there on signs, symptoms, resources, what to do and not, you know, so forth and so on. And, and, uh, and it's an audio book that's free. It's an MP3 mm-hmm. and, it's, and I narrate it. And it's unabridged about four hours and change. The first book, eventually all four will be up there. I'll narrate all four, but the, the, one, the one is up on, you know, in your prize package. There we the, go. Download. Yeah, yeah, I'm reading the title, Guts, Grit, and the Grind, a Mental Mechanics Manual. Now, did you have anything to do with that title, or did they have that title before they looped you in? Oh, no. Uh, It had something to do with the title, and then we all agreed to make it look like a non-real owner's manual. And a comedian friend of mine, 
who's a great artist, did all the covers and all the illustrations inside. And he lives with a mental illness or two. So it's, it's, yeah. We're not even going to go. I'm sure somebody has the the statistic. How many comedians also live with mental illness? Well, a friend of mine used to have a saying. Uh, He passed away by natural causes. But he said, there are two kinds of comedians, diagnosed and undiagnosed. Well, there we go. Okay. I did TEDx talk, my third one. Um, Mental health, let's see what it is. Mental with benefits, the evolutionary advantages of mental illness. Because I kept meeting so many talented people who are also living with mental illness. So I decided that it can't be a coincidence. So I did some research and did a TED on it. And I said to the audience, what if those of us living with a mental illness are not living with a genetic mutation, but an amazing evolutionary adaptation? And what if mental illness is, as Malcolm Gladwell says in his book, David and Goliath, of such things, a desirable disadvantage. You never wish it on anybody. However, it comes with certain advantages. And I said to the audience, look, I don't think I'm broken. I think I was made this way. I think my comedic ability, imagination, creativity is simply the flip side of my depression, thoughts of suicide, because it's the same brain, same wiring, same thought processes. I just kept meeting comedians and actors and singers and writers who were living with a mental illness. And like I said, I, I couldn't believe. And turns out there is some evolutionary. If you go back far enough, let's say cavemen and women, anthropologists believe they were pretty much all bipolar because they had four months in the summer to gather enough stuff to last eight months in the winter. So they had to move. And they were hypersexual because they had to keep the numbers up in the tribe. And come the when the days got shorter and the nights got colder in the fall, they would slip into a depressive state and stay there, birth the children, try to keep them alive until spring when days began to get longer and warmer, and then they go back into the manic phase. So that's come forward since. So what we think of as mental illnesses now were back then perhaps survival skills. You know, I absolutely agree with you. I believe we all have one common ancestor. His name is Og. And I use him in my talks to help people understand all the physiology that happens when we get triggered into fight or flight. And I use him to explain what I believe is the evolutionary history of depression, because that's certainly what was true for me. And as a two-time survivor of clinical depression, I can tell you that fear, what somebody said to you, you hey, if people talk to you about suicide, well, that you know, like not trigger you back into your, I'm like, I lived in the fear that that would be true. That if somebody who was depressed, if I was around them, that that would knock me back into that black abyss. Okay, here we go, Frank. I wouldn't talk to my family if they were down and I wouldn't work with a client who was struggling with depression or down. I was a stress management consultant. <laughs> This was not good for my business. Yes. Yeah. But, but we do. We believe these myths that we can, you know, that it's contagious, that, that we could put the thought in someone's head. None of this is true. Talking about it, verbalizing it, getting it where you can get it outside of you and look at it. We call it naming the elephant in the room is a sound process that allows your brain to recognize the difference between what you're thinking and who you are. Well, and as a speaker Mm -hmm. who lives with two mental illnesses, serious mental illnesses, 
for the audience to see me on stage. Everybody kind of has an idea of what mental illness looks and sounds like. And it's usually that guy on the corner with a sign will work for food, which is basically stage four mental illness. The system has failed them all the way down the line. But to see somebody who's high functioning and joking and speaking and whatever on stage, it changes perception. And that can change prejudices. It can reduce stigma and bullying and eventually suicide. If people understood, there's a great program called Stand Up for Mental Health. You have to be a you have to have a mental health diagnosis to get into this comedy class, and you have to have one to teach it. And at six weeks, they have a um, graduation ceremony, invite friends and family and the general public in. And all these people are doing comedy based on their mental illnesses. Again, people are terrified of public speaking, but imagine public speaking and you're mentally ill and you're talking about it. So people are just fascinated. Uh, you know, yeah, they change exactly. Yeah. All right. Changing perception. That's going to be the title of all the comments on this talk. Frank, thank you so very, very much for being you, for being here and for being willing to help everyone break the silence. And yes, we will post all of the links. Everything will go up on the show notes. If you're watching this, check the show notes. If you're here live, check the chat. Frank, thank you for being you. Uh, you know, Jackie, there are many people I would get up at eight o'clock in the morning for, but on the on, here on the West Coast, but you are one of them. Thank you for turning on and turning up your positivity. We know that positivity is easier to maintain in a community, so we have one. Join our community on Facebook. Your brain on positive. If you've had an aha from the show, please head over to the community and share it. We love to celebrate wins.